Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, Lenten Preaching Edition, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church, recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. Shalom again, y'all. As I enter my uh, 20th year serving Temple Israel as its senior rabbi, I'm mindful of positive achievements and even more of the wonderful people, including 11 different rabbis and clergy partners and the current Fab Four I'm so proud to serve alongside a temple. In the personal sphere, Cheryl and I have lived at five different Memphis addresses in our 29 years here. Much has shifted during my tenure, but a rare constant looking back has been preaching in this series. Calvary was actually among the first houses of worship I visited upon moving to Memphis nearly 30 years ago, and I have admired every Calvary rector and clergy team member ever since. So I mean it when I say that Walters, Carswell, and McLean, not the law firm, but the current Calvary clergy team, is as exemplary a pastoral lineup as any church or synagogue could wish for. I'm so genuinely happy to be with you all again and to continue this historic Temple Israel, Calvary Episcopal Church relationship, which continues with Temple volunteers in the Waffle Shop downstairs while we are up here. It's truly an honor to be in the pulpit of such an eloquent and thoughtful preacher as my friend Scott Walters and the meaningful ministries of you, Paul McLean, Amber Carswell, and Buddy Stallings, too. For all my Southern clergy friends and any of you who have chosen to live in states like Tennessee that often rank 48th, 49th, or 50th for health and income disparities, inequity and poverty, I want to begin with an overlooked verse from the Hebrew Bible known as the Old Testament. This verse speaks to those of us who have chosen to live and minister in soulful cities like Memphis out of our shared religious calling, not only to pray, but to act, to live where we can get proximate, to stand with the poor and stand up for the powerless, to join hands in rejecting racism, and anti-Semitism, and celebrate every human being as an utterly unique signature of God, even and especially when the person beside you or facing you doesn't look like you, live like you, or pray like you. This verse I want to share is from the prophet Ezekiel, who was exiled to Babylon at the time of the first conquest of Jerusalem in 597 
BCE. His mystical visions are so complex that some modern Hebrew scholars have considered Ezekiel to have been mentally disturbed or intoxicated on something other than God. If nothing else, however, Ezekiel's social justice and ethical concerns, his grand visions like the Valley of the Dry Bones, are gems that defy the passing of time. His rhetoric, however, is marked by extreme metaphors unlike any other in the Bible. As my teacher, Dr. Gunther Plout, explicates, Isaiah has his lips touched. Ezekiel eats a scroll. Hosea has Israel whoring around after paramours. Ezekiel follows them into the bedroom and watches. I am not making this up. It's all in the Bible. Ezekiel made the final cut of the Jewish Bible because he was a person who combined a burning concern for social justice with a strong emphasis on the need for ritual. He saw the spiritual and ethical as complementary, just as many of us do here in Memphis across theological lines, rather than separating our relationship with God from our obligation to help society's most vulnerable human beings. For Ezekiel, the Hebrew prophets, and for many of us, it is a both and. For religious progressives, loving your neighbor is not about a zip code. Neighbor is a moral concept. Were Ezekiel alive in Memphis today, he would combine prayer with serving meals on wheels. He'd be making waffle downstairs and spend reflective time upstairs. And it is Ezekiel who actually speaks of the South and employs a Hebrew word, believe it or not, in verse 2 of chapter 21, which has the double meaning of to minister and to irrigate. The verse in Hebrew is ben adam sin panecha derech temana v'hatef el darom v'hinaveh el ya'ar hasadeh negev, which literally means, O oh, human being, turn your face south and minister or irrigate, as in re-enliven the south and prophesy, he says, a third time to the southern region known as the Negev. Now, I find this verb, vehatev, to minister, which also means to irrigate, so resonant with my brothers and sisters of every faith community committed to the greater good, not only in the renewal of downtown Memphis, but in the quiet repair of lives and neighborhoods in South Memphis, Frazier, Raleigh. Interestingly, Ezekiel's primary audience back then were pretty much like most of us. These exiled Israelites living in Babylon were not poor. They belonged to the better-off classes whom the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar had deported from Jerusalem. But their deep concern for the fate and future of the Holy Land stayed with them, just as 
I think everyone in this sanctuary's heart does for Memphis, no matter who we are or what faith we practice. So, as this Lenten season unfolds, our role, not as visitors to the South, but as residents of the South, is unique. We must all become ministers who irrigate and spread God's loving waters of hope, forgiveness, acceptance, and love for as long as we live. The longer we live, the more we can shower people in Memphis with these attributes of God. The longer we live and the older we grow, the more grateful many of us also become. Now that I have reached the age of my favorite steak sauce, Heinz 57, I have never been more appreciative, even if I have always considered myself grateful. It is natural to grow more thankful in time. Think of sports teams and athletes at the end of a championship season or long career versus a rookie year or preseason. Ditto for marriage. As I shared with a recent couple, I was counseling in anticipation of their wedding day. I said, I hope your 2020 wedding day is when you love each other least so that looking back on your 25th wedding anniversary in 2045, you can say, I definitely loved you for sure in 2020, but after all we've experienced, the fun for sure, but also persevering through the challenges and losses after all we've been through, I love you so much more now than I could ever have known when we were younger. There's certainly a huge difference between getting old and growing older. The great 20th century Jewish philosopher Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel used to say that in American culture, it is less rude to ask someone the intimate details of their sex life or how much money they have than it is to ask someone how old they are. We spend zillions of dollars in this country trying to cover up the signs of our aging. But the truth is, we live with a very strange paradox. On one hand, we all want to grow older. But on the other hand, none of us want to be too old. And so far, no one has figured out how to reconcile these two desires. How old is old? It depends on when and where you live. If you had lived in the United States when this church was formed, before 1900, 47 would have been very old because that was average life expectancy then. How old is old? To my college daughter, Julia, 30 seems old. To my oldest daughter, who is 27, 40 seems old. If you are 60, 85 seems old. 
And if you are 85, 85 seems old. But the truth is, how old you are is not only a function of your age, it's also a function of your spirit, your attitude, and of course your health. When Spiru Agnew said, and I quote, if you've seen one slum, you've seen them all. That may be true of blighted neighborhoods, but it is not true of human beings. If you have seen one 85-year-old, you have only seen one 85-year-old. With perennial, my favorite new word for elders, they are not all the same. Just look at the individuals who have made this church, Temple Israel, and all the thriving Memphis congregations like this one so remarkable. How old is old? Story goes that a man comes to an insurance company in Israel and wants to buy a policy. The insurance executive says to him, how old are you? The man says, 75. They say, go away, we don't sell policies to people 75. He says, but you sold one to my father last week, and he's 95 years old. They check the records, and sure enough, they find out that the man is right. They tell him to come in next Monday and see if they can straighten this out. The man says, I can't come in next Monday. Why can't you come in next Monday, they ask. I can't come in next Monday, he continues, because I'm going to my grandfather's wedding. The agent says, really, how old is your grandfather? The man says, 115. The agent responds, 115? Why does he want to get married at that age? The man replies, he doesn't, but his parents are pushing him. <laughs> Why today's talk about age? Because we Jews and you Christians inherit a Bible with models on how to grow older versus simply getting older. In a span of fewer than three chapters in the book of Genesis, chapters 47 through 50, Abraham's grandson, Jacob, grows older, and so does his son, Joseph. There are lots of grandkids, too. We therefore, it's been said, have the first example of a sandwich generation. It's not uncommon today for people in their 50s and 60s to take care of their parents in their 80s and 90s. But Jacob and Joseph are the first example of such a relationship that we have in the Bible. They're the first example of two older adults who care for each other spiritually and of one who must care for the other physically. How did they do? Remarkably well. Joseph prime minister of Egypt, lived in that capital city where he functioned as the vice president of the country. His father, Jacob, lived with the rest of his sons in the boonies in Eads. No, it's a place in Egypt called Goshen, some miles away. 
Joseph would visit his dad as often as he could. Jacob let his children raise their kids their own way. So Jacob, who's well past the age of 100, he does three things before he dies to show that he still is growing with a mind of his own. First thing he does, he gathers his children around his bedside and he shares what is known as an ethical will in which he reminds them of what matters most to him, what disappoints him, what brings him pride. And then he blesses his 12 sons. And by doing this, Jacob begins a custom and tradition Jewish parents have continued ever since. My own father of blessed memory gave me and my family his ethical will long before he died to keep opposite my work desk so that his values might live on through me. Look up Jewish ethical wills. You don't have to be Jewish to write one for your own family. It's a great exercise. The second thing Grandpa Jacob did was he rewrote his other will to make his grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh, equal heirs with his own children. No favorites. And then the namesake of the Jewish people, Jacob, who becomes Israel, does a third thing. As Jacob is about to bless his grandsons on his deathbed, Joseph arranges his boys before their grandfather the traditional way with the favored oldest child on the right side and the youngest on the left. Grandpa Jacob switches his hands, placing the favored right hand on the youngest when it's supposed to be on the oldest. Joseph, who was himself the youngest, you recall, tries to correct his dad. But Father Jacob refuses his son's attempt to correct the order of precedence of the children. Think of all the pain accumulated in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's families, favoring one child over another, just as there still is in too many of our own families. So Joseph, himself the younger child, says to his father through his nonverbal action, enough, Dad, let's stop this game already. Jacob, who was also the younger brother to Esau, replies at age 147 with three words. Yadati v'ni, yadati, which means, I know, my son, I know. In this brief exchange, we see that Jacob and Joseph had changed and really grown in their older age. Joseph, the spoiled younger son, the favorite, thrown into a pit by his brothers, survives to live and see how much harm parental favoritism has done to him and to his brothers. So he says to his father, tactfully but firmly, enough, dad, let's cut this out. Father Jacob, who is, of course, much older than his son, 
So it's harder for him to change. Does the most remarkable thing. Forget for a moment who gets the right hand, who gets the left. What's remarkable is that Jacob gives his two grandsons only one blessing. He says the same thing to both of them. He says, Yesimech Elohim Kefrayim V'chim Nasheh, by you grandsons shall the Jewish people give their blessings, saying, may God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. So unlike 12 separate blessings which Jacob gives to his 12 sons and their separate tribes, Jacob gives his grandsons only one joint blessing. And here's the other remarkable thing. The grandsons accept it. Neither one says to the other, no fair, I want my own blessing. Instead, they gratefully accept the shared blessing. And my friends, believe it or not, this is the blessing said to this day by Jewish parents upon their sons on Friday evening as the Sabbath begins. Daughters are blessed. May God make you like Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah, who carried forward the life of our faith family. But sons are not blessed. May God make you like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, since Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob fought with their brothers and became parents who favored one child over another. Instead, Jewish parents are to bless their sons the way I bless our own son, Jake, with the biblical words you just heard. May God make you, my son, like Ephraim and Manasseh, the first siblings in the Bible who got along and who carried forward the life of our heritage and faith. May you not compete or be jealous of your siblings, but only love them as you carry forward our family. Isn't that every parent's deepest wish? That their children may get along with each other? Jacob teaches us with this blessing over his grandkids that we can still grow and change even past age 100. Joseph, the son, who is also up in years, 110, grows in wisdom when he tells his father, do me a favor, dad, please don't choose one of my kids over the other. I have to admit I loved it when you favored me many years ago. But I'm older now, and I realize it wasn't the right thing to do. So please don't do it to my kids. Joseph, the son, was older than anyone in this sanctuary when he said this. Yet he was still young enough and wise enough to learn and to change. As I said, he dies at age 110, still growing on the inside, even as his body was wearing out on the outside. Friends, so long as we still have breath, so long as we still have life and mental faculties within us, there is 
always still time to grow, change, make amends. There's still time to share blessings and to become blessings to those whose lives we touch. Ezekiel reassures the people Israel in the South and everywhere else that there will be an afterlife. Ezekiel says that our bodies will be resurrected and that we will be reunited with those we love wherever we go from here. But as another preacher said years ago in this Lenten series, heaven is fine. Earth is where all the problems are. So make up now and live as long as you can. Joseph and Jacob, according to the Bible, lived to ages 147 and 110. They were blessed with children, grandchildren, and large families, as so many of you are. But whether you are an only child, single, childless, single parent, coupled with a large family, May God bless each of you and your families in the spirit of Jacob and Joseph, especially into their later years of wisdom and growth. And finally, may you never grow old, even if you think you are. Amen. Please rise for the priestly benediction. Yevarecha Adonai Veishmarecha. May the Lord bless you and keep you and protect you. Yair Adonai Pahanam Elecha Vichunecha. May God's countenance shine upon you and fill you with grace. Yisa Adonai, Yisa Adonai, Panam Elecha, Ve'yaseim Lecha, Ve'yaseim Lecha, Ve'yaseim Lecha, Shalom, Shalom. May you always feel the countenance of God in you, beside you, around you. And together, as we lead this service, may we make and create and share shalom. Wholeness, harmony, balance, good health, we pray, and peace. And let us say, Amen. The Calvary Podcast theme music was composed by Spence Bailey. Special thanks to Robin Banks, Director of Communications at Calvary, and Heidi Rupke, Lenten Preaching Series Coordinator. And thanks to you for listening. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.